Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight by talking about a newly rediscovered fossil. This time, it's the remains of a vampire squid from the collections of the Hungarian National History Museum, which was first discovered in 1942 by Hungarian paleontologist Miklos Kretzoy, who identified it as a 30-million-year-old squid, naming it Necrotuthis hungarica. Later researchers uh, had examined it in that time period, and they suspected that it actually might be a cuttlefish ancestor. However, in 1956, during the Hungarian Revolution, the museum was burned down and the fossil, and the fossil thought lost. It was rediscovered by study co-author Martin Kostak, a paleontologist at Charles University in Prague, and his colleagues. It was a great moment, Kostak said of the rediscovery, to see something previously suggested to be definitely lost. His team studied the fossil with scanning electron microscopy and conducted a geochemical analysis. They found that Kretzoy had been correct and that it was indeed a squid ancestor, or a squid. The internal shell, or gladius, which forms the backbone of the body, is around six inches long, suggesting the squid would have been just under 14 inches long, with all of the body and arms included. This is actually a bit bigger than the modern vampire squid, which reaches around 11 inches in total body length. Those modern-day squid, Vampriotuthis infernalis, <laughs> thrive in deep oxygen-poor ocean water, unlike many species which thrive in shallower waters along the continental shelves. So they're kind of an outlier for squid. Most squids uh, enjoy sort of the upper echelons of the ocean, and they prefer to be right near the continental shelves, um, which is why uh, a lot of them are easily fished and why you can have calamari all the time. <laughs> Since few fossils of the creatures exist, it was hard to tell just when they began to thrive in the deeper depths of the ocean. This rediscovered fossil helps to fill in the gap and reveals that its ancestors were already in the deep ocean during the Oligocene, some 23 to 34 million years ago. Kostak believed that the squids probably adapted to the low oxygen water in the Jurassic. Life is stable. Life instable, low oxygen levels brings evolutionary advantages, low predation pressure, and less competition, Kostak wrote. The sediments surrounding the fossil showed no trace of microfossils usually found on the seafloor, suggesting that it did not live in shallow waters. They also examined the levels of carbon in the sediment and found that it most likely came from an anoxic, low oxygen environment like that of the deep floor of the deep sea floor. 
Further, they found that layers from shallow sea deposits found near where the fossil was originally discovered, outside modern Budapest, contain high levels of a plankton that blooms in low-salt, high-nutrient environments, which modern vampire squids cannot tolerate. The research helps further the hypothesis on how these squids were able to move into this new niche. The oldest fossils of the group are found in the Jurassic period between 201 and 174 million years ago. The major differences is that these oxygen-depleted conditions were established in the shelf, a shallow water environment, he said. This means that the ancestors were inhabitants of shallow water environs, but they were already adapted to low oxygen conditions. And so this new fossil helps connect those earlier squid to today's modern squid. Their move to, the, to these deep waters might help explain why these squids ex survived the extinction event that killed all of the non-avian dinosaurs as well. And of course, much of the other life on Earth during the Cretaceous period. The next stop for Kostak and his colleagues is to look into the origins of cuttlefish, which remain elusive. And speaking of cuttlefish, a new study tested whether or not these adorable and fairly large-brained cephalopods can delay gratification. In humans, this is usually called the marshmallow test, because uh, generally they do it with young, uh, with young people, and there is the possibility of getting one marshmallow immediately or two marshmallows if they can wait a certain period of time. So that's how they do it with human uh, subjects or with children, I should say. <laughs> that sounds a little impersonal. Um, and so researchers tested six members of the common cuttlefish, uh, which is sepia officinalis, to see if they could wait for a better food reward while a lesser, lesser quality food item was continuously on offer. An international team of researchers are actually working currently on various methods to test cephalopod intelligence, which is very exciting. Now, I've always argued, and if you're a longtime listener, you've heard me argue this more than once, that especially if they lived longer, uh, cephalopods could totally take over the world. And perhaps now I'll have studies to prove it. Mwahahaha. But let's get back to reality for the moment uh, and learn more about the study published recently in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Our understanding of why self-control evolved has always been based on evolutionary pressures that are relevant to long-lived social species, Alexandra Schnell, a comparative psychologist at the University of Cambridge and lead author of the recent paper, said in an email to Gizmodo. Cuttlefish have not experienced the same pressures. Now, originally there were eight cephalopods, but two dropped out. The remaining six were Mika, Pinto, Demi, Franklin, Jebediah, and Rogelio. And the trials were conducted at the Marine Biological Laboratory uh, in Woods Hole. Now, I'm really glad that the researchers named the cephalopods, uh, or the 
um, cuttlefish, and that they note in their paper that they made every effort to treat them with care, because at present there is no ethical standard for experimenting on cephalopods in the, U in the United States, which I think is not a good thing. Now, of course, the vast majority of researchers don't need specific guidelines and know how to treat their experimental subjects with care, but it's a serious oversight when we start to have these kinds of studies being done that show that they aren't just quote-unquote dumb animals, that they actually do feel things, that they actually can understand those feelings, um, and we're actually going to talk more about that in a minute. And so I think it's time for us to overhaul our idea of whether or not we should have guidelines, because even if you don't think you're uh, doing anything wrong, you might do something because you don't realize that this is actually going to be something that the animal actually retains in memory. And so the research in this case had two, two separate paths. First, the delayed gratification setup gave the cuttlefish a choice between two different foods. One was of lower interest to the animal and was freely available, but if chosen, they would then not have access to the higher quality food. They could wait for a live grass shrimp, which was their preference, to eat, or immediately eat either a piece of raw king prawn or a small crab. Apparently the crab was the least appetizing to them. <laughs> Some of the cuttlefish could last up to two minutes before they succumbed and grabbed at the readily available food option, or waited for two minutes until they were able to get that higher quality food, I should say. And so interestingly, the experimental setup was more robust than in some other tests with other animals because in trials with corvids and primates, the decision is usually a closed circuit. If they chose to wait, they no longer had access to the instant gratification. While in this experiment, the cuttlefish could opt out and take the instant gratification at any time during the wait. Now, the researchers also suggest that the cuttlefish may engage in avoidance activities, such as turning away from the reward in order to help them hold out. Unfortunately, though, the experimental setup involved a partially opaque top to the aquarium, and therefore this activity couldn't really be consistently monitored, so it wasn't statistically significant. Now, the second part of the experiment involved the cuttlefish being trained using a reversal learning task. In this task, the cuttlefish were first taught to associate one reward to, to associate a reward with one of two stimuli and then in a subsequent trial, exchange the cue with the alternative stimulus. For instance, having a black button and a white button. In the first trial, the black button was associated with a reward, but in the second trial, the white button is associated with the reward. They found that the longer a cuttlefish could hold out for the better food in the first trial, the better they were at learning and reproducing the ability to remember which stimulus was currently tied to the reward. The researchers also wanted to test a non-social species because, again, previous studies are all of potentially cooperative uh, animals, such as primates and birds. The cuttlefish, on the other hand, is largely a solitary animal, only coming together 
with members with other members of the species during mating season. This finding is an extreme example of convergent evolution, Schnell said. Cuttlefish have significantly different evolutionary histories from the more commonly studied apes, corvids, and parrots, and yet they have the same cognitive feature. Schnell suggests that the ability to wait may have to do with the need to remain still and camouflaged while they wait to forage for food. This doesn't give us the entire picture, and each study only offers one piece of the puzzle, Schnell said. We are in need of many more studies before we can make meaningful comparisons between the general intelligence of cuttlefish and large-brained vertebrates. But it's a very cool finding, nonetheless, that these wonderful marine animals might be a lot smarter than we once thought. Now, we've got one more cephalopod story tonight. This one is a pre-proof, so it's still subject to some adjustments, but we are starting out strong with the trifecta of cephalopods tonight, and I thought that, you know, it fit in. Of course, we're leaving out the Nautilus, which are very cool in their own right, but nobody's had any new research on them in the past week or so, so unfortunately they can't join us. Neurobiologist Robin Crook from San Francisco State University has been studying whether or not octopuses experience pain as an emotional state beyond just the anatom the autonomic response. Autonomic response. That's how you say that. <laughs> autonomic response to pain stimuli. The latest research from her lab used the same protocol for testing pain in laboratory rodents on octopuses. This is exciting because invertebrates have a fundamentally different and often much simpler nervous system. The study focused on octopuses because they have one of the most complex nervous systems for an invertebrate. The researchers used detailed measurements of neural activity with spontaneous pain-associated behaviors to identify three lines of evidence suggesting that octopuses experience both pain both physically and emotionally. Now, this isn't definitive, as it's very hard to measure the emotional states of other animals. But Crook argues that the behaviors observed suggest the subject's were experiencing both physical pain and emotional states similar to that of rodents, including lasting changes to the in their affective state, which is a term used for animals' moods, feelings, attitudes, things like that. Even in the absence of proof-unconscious awareness or sentience in cephalopods, it remains clear that the responses demonstrated by octopuses in this study are so similar to those that would be expressed by mammals experiencing pain that a reasonable cautionary argument can be made that internal state that internal states of these disparate species is likely also similar. Crook concludes. So Remember how we were talking about the lack of rules around how cephalopods are treated in experimental settings? Uh, these guys definitely went through a little more than those uh, cuttlefish in the previous uh, study, but, you know, it is in order to show that they really do have these issues, and so maybe we should treat them better. Um, so... But there are definitely some more extreme measures I'm going to mention in this story. 
And I think that part of the problem, again, is that we tend to uh, not be able to empathize as well with invertebrates as we do with vertebrates, which makes sense. Um, and so, yeah. But hopefully, again, this research will help to show that maybe we do need to pre protect these guys better. So the animals were set into a three-chambered box, and then some were given a shot of acetic acid in one arm, while others were given a shot of harmless saline. Those who received the acid then showed aversion to the chamber of the box in which they had received the negative stimulus. Those who received saline had no such avoidance. The researchers then gave some of the octopus octopuses lidocaine, which is of course an analgesic, and others saline to calm the pain. Those who received the, analges the analgesic then preferred the chamber where this happened, with no preference shown again by those who received the saline placebo. This preferencing of place is a strong indication of an effective pain experience in vertebrates. They, are, they also saw the octopus paying attention to the site where the acid was injected, in some cases, for the full 20-minute training trials, removing a small piece of skin with their beaks. Now, previous studies to explore peripheral pain responses involved more extreme tactics, uh, such as the arms being crushed or cut off. Now, octopuses can regrow their arms, um, so that isn't a debilitating um, even though it may seem cruel. Um, but they weren't looking at centralized pain signals, rather just those peripheral pain responses. The new study suggests that the acid injection actually created a centralized response with electrophysiological recordings indirectly showing a prolonged peripheral response in the pathway to the, uh, the octopus's brain, which appears to represent the intensity of pain experienced from the injection. They also found that these messages were silenced and reversed when an analgesic was administered. Together, these data provide strong support for the existence of a lasting, negative effective state in octopuses, the paper concluded. And so this is the first experimental evidence of ongoing as opposed to transient pain and continues to suggest that we've underestimated the ability for higher cognitive functions in invertebrates, at least cephalopods. They do kind of stand out alone as a uh, really higher developed um, set of invertebrates. But that doesn't mean that other invertebrates don't have these same issues. It's just that cephalopods are definitely kind of the... Uh, the geniuses of uh, the invertebrates, as far as we know at this moment. Again, though, this is preliminary information, which will need more research to substantiate. And so the researchers actually write in a limitation section, which is always good to have uh, in a paper. Reversal of place preference by lidocaine was variable, which may have been due to incomplete or off-target lidocaine infiltration of the acetic acid-affected region. More generally, there is an ongoing debate about the relationship between sentience, consciousness, and affect that can complicate links between behavioral, experimental readout, and internal state. If we accept that an animal must be conscious and sentient to experience ne negative effect, 
negative affect, it must then be necessary for octopuses to be conscious to experience pain, a controversial proposition, but one which has received considerable attention. Even in the absence of proofs on conscious awareness or sentience in cephalopods, it remains clear that the responses demonstrated by octopuses in this study are so similar to those that would be expressed by mammals experiencing pain that a reasonably reasonable cautionary argument can be made that internal state of these disparate species is likely also similar. Sorry, that was a bit long, but um, basically they're saying, you know, we can't prove it, but we, we strongly suspect it's there, which is really interesting. Um, and of course, cephalopods are just always incredibly interesting. Um, there's so much that we don't understand about how they work <laughs> just in the abstract. And so it's really fascinating. Um, so much so that there was a ridiculous paper years ago, um, that I know I've talked about before where a group of, uh, non, uh, biologists, um, or oceanographers or anybody that had to do with actual, like, understanding of, uh, the biology of these animals actually made a case that they might be of extraterrestrial origin. Um, and that's just how weird they are. I mean, obviously we have fossil records of how they developed. Um, we talked about that with the, um, with the, uh, vampire squid. And so we know that they did develop on earth. Uh, they weren't just dropped here one day by, um, aliens. And so, um, like I said, that was by a bunch of people, uh, who, you know, are astronomers and xenobiologists and people who don't really know that much about actual, uh, cephalopods themselves. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's out there because they are weird. All right. So we're going to shift slightly now. We're going to stay in the water, but we're going to talk about a robot that can handle the crushing pressures of the Mariana Trench. And yes, we've had, we've had some that have done that before, but Chinese researchers have reported on a soft bodied robot with adapted high hardware that was able to withstand a 10 kilometer dive into the Mariana Trench. Now, normally you would need a ROV or a bathysphere that has been highly, highly, um, reinforced in order to, uh, maintain its shape against those intense pressures. And so, um, you know, that's really expensive to use that. They're probably using titanium and things like that that are expensive. And also just it ends up being really bulky and a lot of work. Whereas if you can have a soft bodied robot, that's a lot easier, um, potentially. And so this is very cool. The researchers report that they were inspired by species of snailfish, which kind of glide through the water, found in deep ocean trenches some eight or more kilometers below the surface. The snailfish has developed a curious quirk of anatomy in order to better stand the pressure at depth. 
their skulls don't close off entirely. With less rigid material to be crushed, the fish are then able to stand the pressure better. The problem with constructing a soft-bodied robot is that, well, it still requires hardware in order to supply power and movement. Some soft-bodied robots keep these parts external to the actual body of the um, robot, but the researchers wanted to create a robot that was more equivalent to an ROV. It turns out that they lucked out with the batteries. Lithium batteries seem to just be fine with high pressure. They don't have a problem. But electronics are another story. When the researchers tested circuit boards with multiple components, they tended to fail at the junctions of these various components. So the researchers instead created individual components and distributed them throughout the body of the robot, much like that, uh, like the skeleton of these snailfish, where it's more distributed and not quite as rigid. For those that needed to remain on the single board, the researchers increased the side, size of the boards to, you know, if you have an increased size, you have um, the pressure is distributed more. Um, you know, it's that sort of thing about um, how you can sit on a bed of nails or something like that. If you have a large enough surface area, um, the pressure isn't too great on any one point. And so they were actually able to cut the stresses on the boards by a factor of six, according to Ars Technica. Now, the other issue was that the actuators, which move the fins of the robot, needed to stand up. Typically, in soft-bodied robots, these are constructed from a flexible polymer that expands and contracts when a current is run through the material. Typically, it will contract nearly 20% of its left, of its length. But when you dip this particular polymer into cold, deep water, the contraction rate plummets to under 3%, which is not enough for the robot to be able to actually move its fins and propel itself. So the researchers found a polymer that was similar, but actually not as effective on dry land, contracting a mere 13%. But it was better able to stand up to cold and pressure, with a retained ability of 7% contraction, just enough to make the fins work as needed. Now, the robot is all white with two large fins on each side of the body, connected by a membrane, and a straight tail almost as long as the body itself. It is self-contained and does not have an umbilical in the way that many ROVs require. Now, the researchers tested the robot at various depths and in pressure tanks at the university before finally having it lowered to the bottom of the trench. Now, the researchers did not let it swim freely there, but they did prove that the fins would flap and the robot overall worked. Of course, this is very much a proof of concept. The batteries currently last less than an hour. There is no good way to steer the robot unless you want it to go in circles by flapping one fin repeatedly. It can't control its depth either. So, uh, in addition, it also doesn't have any sensors or other instrumentation beyond that needed to work the fins and the power supply. So it's very much a proof of concept, kind of like ingenuity. Um, but it is still very cool to see this little guy swimming along, if somewhat slowly. Uh, and, of course, 
perhaps leading to a new class of robots that can explore the depths and hidden corners of the oceans. Because as I always remind people, we know more about the surface of Mars in some respects than we do about what lies at the bottom of our own planet's oceans. So it's always good to see people developing new technologies for exploring the depths. All right, we are going to take a break now and do some PSAs and show promos. And when we come back, we're actually going to shift to Mars and check in with Percy and Percy's cameras and just what they will be able to see. So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome 
back to evidence-based radio. As promised, we are shifting to Mars and once again uh, talking a little bit about our latest Mars explorer, Perseverance. And so we're going to talk about its ability to capture images in various uh, ways on the Red Planet. With the landing of Percy, there are now 25 new cameras on Mars, 23 on the rover itself, and two on Ingenuity, the drone helicopter. Now, most of the cameras are simply there to keep Percy from stumbling or otherwise helping to keep it on a safe path, but a few of them are really meant to look at the surface and help us understand what's out there. These cameras are an integral part of the main mission to look for signs of former life on the planet. As as we've talked about, Yezero Crater was once a shallow lake with sediments gathering along its walls. Those sediments now make up 150-foot-tall cliffs that are akin to those found in the Grand Canyon, striated and multicolored with different layers. That layering can tell us a lot about the past of this area. They are both a geological and a chemical treasure trove. And so we needed cameras that could look at this layering, not only in the visible spectrum, but also in the X-ray, infrared, and ultraviolet spectrum. If there are sedimentary rocks on Mars that preserve evidence of any ancient biosphere, This is where we're going to find them, says Jim Bell, a planetary scientist at Arizona State University and the principal investigator on one of the rover's sets of eyes. This is where they should be. Bell's team, again, uh, we've talked about Bell before. He runs MastCam-Z, and so this is the premier camera system on the rover, and it sits atop the masthead and features a set of binocular Uh, cameras that are truly state-of-the-art. We developed MastCam-Z for a rover going to a spot on Mars that hadn't been selected yet, so we had to design it with all the possibilities in mind, the optimal set of eyes to capture the geology of any spot on Mars, says Melissa Rice, a planetary scientist at Western Washington University and co-investigator on MastCam-Z. Close up, the camera will be able to resolve images around one millimeter across. From a hundred meters away, it will be able to resolve images at four centimeters. That's better than the human eye. And as noted, there is a wider spectrum of viewing capacity as well. The camera actually features off-the-shelf image sensors from Kodak, similar to what you might have in your cell phone. But they have an important difference. In front of the CCD, or charge-coupled device of the sensor, is a layer of pixels that detect red, green, and blue. They have a grid of four squares, blue and green on top, red and green on bottom, repeated out in a pattern called the bear pattern, which is basically the computerized version of human photoreceptors. Part of the issue with displaying these images to the public, though, is that Mars receives less light from the sun and there is little atmosphere to reflect or refract the light. 
No blue skies or rainbows on Mars. As you've no doubt seen, Mars is big on brown and red and little else. And, but of course, one of the big things that people expect out of a mission like this are these pictures. We talked about showing an approximate true color image, essentially close to a raw color image, that we take with very minimal processing. That's one version of what Mars would look like to human to a human eye, Rice says. But the human eye evolved to see landscapes under Earth illumination. If we want to reproduce what Mars would look like to a human eye, we should be stimulating Earth illumination conditions onto those Martian landscapes. Now, of course, for Rice, it isn't so much about whether we should appreciate Mars as it looks on the planet or adjusted for our perception. It's about the data contained within those images. How much light at specific wavelengths is absorbed or reflected can tell you a lot about the composition of the material those waves are touching. In addition to the bare filter, which doesn't filter out infrared light, there is a wheel with another set of filters which block out visible light in order to see infrared light. By choosing particularly narrow bands of light, you can distinguish different types of rock. In fact, before Percy set out, the team created what they call a geoboard, which consisted of both color swatches and an assortment of slices of the kinds of rocks they thought the rover might encounter on the surface of the planet. The camera was able to easily distinguish between rocks that look largely the same to the naked eye, but display very differently under infrared light. And so they actually had a picture of the kind of regular light uh, version of the geoboard and a infrared version of the geoboard. And um, most of the rocks had these really interesting patterns of um, glowing green on them. And again, there were two rocks um, that look pretty much the same, just bright white um, in normal everyday light, but they looked completely different, uh, had completely different patterning in that um, under infrared light. So it's very cool to be able to see how you can really distinguish between those different kinds of rocks. Now, Mascam Z is definitely pretty awesome, and that was a totally cool display. But it's not the be-all and end-all of cameras. Its field of view is only around 15 degrees wide. And the slow upload bandwidth would make some of us remember, unfondly, the days of AOL dial-up. Though we do end up with nice mosaic vistas, those are pasted together from tons of smaller images. And, of course... It's only seeing a certain amount of information. Dude, our job is triage, Bell says. We're using color as a proxy for, hey, that's interesting. Maybe there's something going on chemically there. Maybe there's some different material, mineral there, some different texture. Color is a proxy for something else. And so it's not the most amazing camera ever, even though it has some really cool features. You just have to, you know, manage expectations. And in fact, uh, the field of vision is so narrow that during testing in the Southern California desert, it kind of became painfully obvious. 
As a kind of joke, but also as an object lesson, my colleagues in one of those field tests once put a dinosaur bone right along the rover path, he says. We drove right past it. Now again, color is very helpful, but again, it's not the end-all and be-all. And so we will also need things like x-rays. And so that's where the Planetary Instrument for X-ray Lithochemistry, or PIXEL, comes in. It's looking for the combination of the elemental recipe for minerals and fine-grained textures. The thought is that the earliest life on Earth we have preserved in the fossil record comes mainly from stromatolites. Stromatolites are concretions of sediment combined with tiny domes and cones that come from mats of once-living microbes. The lead for this project is Abigail Allwood, an astrobiologist and field geologist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who has experience with finding stromatolites. She used the pixel technology along with high-resolution pictures to determine that the earliest known life on Earth is found in Australian remains of stromatolites, and also determined that similar-looking formations in Greenland were not caused by organic life. We create the x-rays to bathe the rock in, and then detect that signal to study the elemental chemistry, Allwood says. And Pixel and the arm also have a bright white flashlight on the end. The illumination on the front started out as just a way of making the rocks easier to see, to tie the chemistry to visible textures, which hasn't been done before on Mars. The light, interestingly, is actually not a white LED, but rather a combination of red, green, blue, and ultraviolet LEDs, which produced a more consistent white light than that of an actual white LED due to fluctuations based on temperature. And so the idea is to combine the visual information with the x-ray results to image the tiniest features, grains and veins, in order to tell whether a rock is igneous or sedimentary, and potentially whether or not that rock has features that would make it seem to be stromatolite-like. <laughs> Um, and of course, that's a big thing. We kind of have to decide what we think we would be looking for for signs of life. So we figure if there, if life developed on Mars, it probably took around the same kind of turn as it did here. And so we would look for stromatolites because those are the oldest form of life here on Earth. And so when we find these layers, uh, the colors of the layers above the feature will also tell us more about its age. It's hoped that the visible colors and textures will line up with the numbers only map that the x-ray results generate. This will let Atwood determine if the area looks, again, more like Australia, which would indicate life, or Greenland, which would indicate just a weird formation that happens to look like a stromatolite. What we found that's really interesting with Pixel is that it shows you stuff you don't see through the chemistry, Allwood said. That would be the key. The hope is to create what she calls a hyperspectral data cube, 
where the Pixel's miniature scans will yield an infrared map of 6,000 individual points on the postage stamp-sized field of view in multiple spectrums. These are some of the tools that will help Percy search for the signs of life on the Mars surface. However, um, and actually we also talked about an instrument that will shoot lasers at the rocks to vibrate their molecules and examine them using Raman spectroscopy. And so the best evidence for, an for ancient life on Mars would obviously be from, from actual astronauts bringing back actual rocks from the surface of Mars directly back to a lab on Earth where it could be examined and actually be, you know, confirmed to have uh, this um, actual ability to show that there were signs of life there. But obviously we can't do that right now. And so in sort of uh, order of importance, the first thing we're going to be looking at is that X-ray and Raman spectroscopy, then the rover's cameras, and then orbiter cameras to help add to the body of evidence. Finding life on Mars will not be such and such an instrument sees something. It'll be all the instruments saw this, that, and the other thing, and the interpretation makes life reasonable, Allwood says. There's no smoking gun. It's a complicated tapestry. Now, Percy isn't only looking for signs of life, but also features other instruments for discovering more about the planet. And as the rover continues to deploy its instruments and get ready to start the mission, the wind sensor has been confirmed to have been deployed. This is part of Percy's weather station, the Mars Environmental Dynamics Analyzer, or MEDA. This instrument will monitor air temperature, humidity, radiation, dust, and wind at the landing site. MEDA will study the dusty environment and help will study the dusty environments, help predict what kind of weather future astronauts may face, measure radiation which might alter rocks that can hold signs of ancient life, will study how water vapor is exchanged between the soil and atmosphere on Mars, and will show how dust and weather ultimately affect the ability of Percy to continue on its mission. And so Percy uh, is equipped with a um, radioactive power source. So uh, Percy will not be daunted if uh, it gets caught in a global uh, sandstorm, um, unlike some of the uh, previous rovers. Um, I'm, I'm completely blanking on the name of the rover that, um, you know, it ended its mission because it got caught in that, um, in that dust storm and its solar panels were completely covered. Um, but Percy doesn't have to worry about that because it does have nuclear propulsion um, or nuclear battery, I should say. So that's really exciting. Um, and so again, this is another way in which NASA is kind of prepping for trying to see whether or not it will uh, be possible for astronauts to land and really use 
the resources on the planet um, when they get there. So one of the other instruments we've talked about briefly is that there is actually an instrument that should be trying to make oxygen from the surrounding atmosphere, because that would be a huge thing for uh, colonizing Mars. If you could actually have a device that creates oxygen from the atmosphere from the available gases, that would be a big step forward um, because oxygen is a big issue for whether or not you could actually put people on the face of a planet like that. Of course, the other one is radiation. There's a lot of radiation because the, um, the surface of Mars doesn't have, again, that atmosphere to uh, block out uh, harmful rays. So there's no ozone layer. Um, and of course, it also doesn't have a magnetic field anymore that's dynamic and strong. And so it doesn't deflect cosmic rays either. And so as I'm always trying to note, it's, it's going to be a difficult haul in order to colonize Mars. I don't think it's impossible. Um, I don't think that it's not worth doing, uh, in some respects, though obviously, I've made my feelings on, uh, sort of earth first, <laughs> known, uh, pretty, um, widely, but you know, it's, it's something that we could, and, you know, potentially should do. All right, let's move on now. And actually we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about the written word. And so the first one we're going to talk about, we may not get to the second one, but we're going to talk about the first one at least. And so this is a bit of a miraculous use of technology. In July, it's in July 1697, Jacques Senakis of Lille, France, wrote a letter to his cousin Pierre Lepers in The Hague. It concerned a death certificate for their relative, which the two had previously discussed, but which Le Pairs had failed to follow up on. This letter is basically a per-my-previous-email missive from the Renaissance. And now the letter has been read, which is not particularly impressive until you know that the letter has not been opened. It's letter-locked, a term coined by MIT conservator Jenna D'Ambrogio, to describe letters which were folded in, folded in just such a way, sometimes using small slits, in order to seal the letter without an envelope, in the days before these were readily available at the local stationery store. Apparently, Queen Elizabeth I had at least five different versions of letter locking for keeping her letters private. In order to read a letter that remains folded several times over required some pretty fancy thinking and a repurposed x-ray machine. D'Ambrogio's team used x-ray microtomography to virtually unfold the text. They reported on their success in a paper published in Nature Communications. I remember a feeling of elation, as in, oh my god, we finally did it, said co-author Rebecca Arendt, a musicologist at Utrecht University, in an email. Having worked with this collection for a number of years, the effect of I'm probably the first person reading this since it was written, has admittedly worn off a bit. 
That said, this letter is such a wonderful example of the concerns of normal people at this time. The letter is part of the Brienne collection currently housed at the Hague's Sound and Vision Museum and comes from a remarkable source. As you might expect, the letter never reached Le Pairs. He may have moved or he may not have wanted to accept the letter. In this era, the letter would have had to been paid for by the recipient. There were no stamps yet to allow the sender to facilitate the transaction. So the letter remained in the care of the chief postmaster of The Hague, Simone de Brienne, and his wife, Marie Germain. The couple apparently took their job very seriously as they held on to this and many other unclaimed letters until their death. Thousands of letters are held in an antique trunk, with 600 of them being unopened letter-locked messages. It's basically a time capsule filled with the everyday concerns of the letter of the letter writers. Now, what makes this possible is that the ink used by Synox, and hopefully the others, was iron-rich. So shooting x-rays through the letter showed the spread of the ink on the folds. The x-rays were produced by a modified machine originally meant to image teeth and bones. We started with a very high-resolution CAT scan of the folded letter packet, basically a 3D x-ray image, said co-lead author Amanda Gassay. The algorithm engineer, engineer lead on the project, and who previously had worked on simulating the folds in origami, noted in an email to Gizmodo. From there, our algorithm detects individual layers of paper in the scans and reconstructs the folded geometry. This computational pipeline allows us to observe writing, watermarks, seals, internal folds, and any other information hidden inside the letter packet without doing any damage to the original artifact, which is just mind-blowing. The next step was to decipher the folds to understand which characters should be on which part of the unfolded paper. They used a computational flattening script, which did the geometrical com computations for the researchers. The message and intricate internal mechanisms of these letters are not are only known to us because we have because they have been virtually reconstructed, said co-author Holly Jackson, an undergraduate at MIT and an algorithm engineer on the project. Our methods are fully automatic, unbiased to scan orientation, and require no prior knowledge about a letter packet's folded geometry, which is incredible. So what did the letter say? The original is in slightly archaic French, but a English translation is this. Dear Sir and Cousin, it has been a few weeks since I wrote to you in order to ask you to have drawn up for me a legalized excerpt of the death of Sieur Daniel Le Pairs, which took place in The Hague in the month of December 1695, without hearing from you. This is, and there's a bit smudged, I am writing to you a second time in order to remind you of the pains that I took on your behalf. It is important to me to have this extract you will do me a great pleasure to procure it for me to send me at the same time news of your health of all you, of all the family. I also pray that God maintains you in his sainted graces and covers you with the blessings necessary to your salvation. 
nothing more for the time being, except that I pray you to believe that I am completely, sir and cousin, your most humble and very obedient servant, Jacques Sinox. And then there's a postscript. I beg you to send your response to Mr. Sinox, King's Council in the Bailiwick of Lille, Rue St. Etienne in Lille, from, and then he wrote, from Lille, the 31st of July, 1697. And of course, it is wonderful that we can read this letter. I'm extremely excited about the fact that this is a proof of concept, however. And so the paper is accompanied by a dictionary for the many ways that a letter can be letter-locked, and this can be a roadmap for discovering much of what is contained in the other unclaimed letters. One of the harder things to figure out in archaeology and even in the historical record is how everyday people, who weren't either royalty or members of the clergy, actually passed their days beyond just doing their jobs and whatever else they had to do to survive. And while these were clearly people who had learning to write letters, it can still give us new insights into the culture of the local area and time, which is totally exciting. All right, I'm going to save talking about the Egyptian scroll until next week. And so we are out of time for tonight. Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy. The political climate of today's world is extremely polarized, and nuanced conversations are dead. And I shouldn't have to say this, the bi-weekly chaotic good podcast, well, all of those things are still true. Co-host Nicole and Janra do their very best to hold honest conversations about everything political, from art to policy, finance, and electoral strategy, with humor and humility, from a couple of opinionated leftists dead set on creating a better world and fighting misinformation wherever and from whoever it crops up from. Search for I Shouldn't Have to Say This on your favorite podcast listening app, or you can visit saythiscast.com. I Shouldn't Have to Say This is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network.